of Carpet City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, and uh, it's been a pretty good uh, week for Gila Films. The last Frankenstein, we passed over 800 views on the complete movie up on YouTube, so great to see that, and so far, all positive reactions. Um, also, really uh, got some great news in for Jay Leonard, our film's producer. His latest movie, Break Glass, just got accepted into its first film festival. Um I've mentioned this film in the past. It has a few different cast members from The Last Frankenstein in it, Keely Sheridan, Jeffrey Anno, and Jorge Luna. And Jay, you know, directed and wrote it. And so, yeah, it's going to be playing at the New York Cinefest down in New York City uh, on Monday, May 8th. And hopefully this will be the first of several film festivals they'll be accepted into. But, uh, you know, big, big shout out to Jay and his team for that. It's really great to see that happening. Um... Otherwise, on the uh, Gila Films front, I've just been digging into some research for the next script, which is the uh, Last Frankenstein sequel. I kind of touched on that in a previous episode, how it's going to basically be uh, imagine a cross between the first Last Frankenstein movie and like a 70s prison movie, like The Glass House was the example I gave. And to that end, I've been reading a few different books uh, just to kind of get in the right mindset. I started out with a, a really great book called New Jack, uh, by Ted Conover, which uh, Conover is a, a writer who, you know, a nonfiction writer who really gets very immersive into the his subject material. So he wanted to get uh, get inside the perspective of a corrections officer, and because he couldn't really get cooperation from the Department of Corrections in New York State, he actually became a corrections officer. He literally went through the academy and was assigned to Sing Sing and spent a lot, uh, quite a bit of time. Um, you know, just working as a CO, and then wrote this book about it. And he had done this uh, pro- previously with a couple other, uh, you know, cultural subgroups. He he wrote a book about the um, kind of like the scene in Aspen back in the day. Uh, and he actually worked like some kind of I think he was like some kind of blue collar job in Aspen just to get the perspective on that. And um, he also. Uh, wrote a book about uh, kind of like the last uh, hurrah of uh, people who rode trains, not as passengers, but who like basically um, uh, bummed rides on trains, uh, which is a much more difficult thing to do now, even though it was really common back in like the Depression era. And so, you know, it's a great read if you ever check it out, New Jack. Um, you know, it's neither a defense nor an indictment of, you know, the correction officer system or mentality. It's just a look at what it's like to be a corrections officer, what it's like dealing with coworkers and supervisors and inmates and the system. Uh, it's just really, really engrossing read. And that was the first book I uh, really wanted to dig into uh, in prepping for the script, which it was a, a big help for sure. So after finishing that, I moved over to a uh, book called Ball Four by Jim Bhutan because uh, one of the main characters in the Last Frankenstein sequel is going to be a um, someone who is a former baseball player. Um, and, uh, ball four was a huge, uh, best-selling book back when it was written. It came out in 1970 and Bhutan had pitched for the New York Yankees. And in this book, he chronicled his 1969 season, which was after he had been with the Yankees, 
Uh, he left that team. He was then with a minor league team. Then he went back up to the majors again. And it just was like an insider's kind of like very unvarnished look at uh, life in the dugout. Um, you know, the kind of uh, things that went on between uh, players and managers and players and um, the team owners. Uh, but like I said, it was a big hit uh, led to him, Bhutan, getting his own uh, TV show, actually. Um, he was also around that time showed up in Robert Altman's film, The Long Goodbye, which is a great film, and he had a really key role in that. And uh, just finished that book about a month or so ago. Also extremely well-written. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor, so it's a really great read. And uh, now I'm moving on to book three for the sequels research, which is uh, another nonfiction book called Worse Than Slavery by uh, David Oshinsky. And that's about the... Um, the trustee system, which was in place back in the day, uh, especially used down south, where they actually had uh, prisoners, in inmates inside prisons, uh, who would be working essentially for the prisons as trustees. They'd even be armed sometimes um, to kind of uh, look over some of the other inmates, which, of course, as you can imagine, was a huge disaster, how that, how that played out. And uh, Parchman State Penitentiary down in Mississippi was kind of like this uh, infamous example of that. So this book looks into, you know, I just started reading to it, reading it, but it really kind of starts out just by delving into the uh, perspectives on black people from whites uh, after the Civil War ended down in the South. Um, and, you know, how race relations, the um, desires of you know, some people in the South to keep the black man oppressed just kind of led to these different changes, uh, which will eventually kind of play into the rise of the trustee system and the development of uh, Parchment Penitentiary. So uh, in the film, in the script of The Last Frankenstein, even though uh, the trustee system doesn't exist anymore because, you know, I'm really obviously a big fan of the 70s and stuff, uh, we're going to kind of be uh, placing placing the prison setting within that realm, within that world, kind of like what we did in the, in the last Frankenstein, the first film where, you know, the flashbacks are kind of this, not meant to be a specific time period. They're more representative of this larger time period of like, you know, the sixties or seventies or maybe early eighties, all the flashbacks on the reservation with the young Jason Frankenstein. And even the modern day stuff, we tried to make sure it all had a vintage sensibility to it with, um, you know, everything from people wearing, you know, bootcut jeans to, uh, you know, shooting on locations that had a mid-century look. It's just kind of keeping that mindset with the sequel, you know, it's, again, it, it's a set in, it's going to be set in contemporary times, but kind of in a way to kind of evoke that mid-century feel, that 70s feel, uh, you know, kind of doing things that, you know, might not necessarily be uh, super realistic, like having having the prison where most of the action is going to take place still be uh, operating under the trustee kind of system. Uh, that's the book I'm writing now. Uh, just got into it, a few chapters into it, um, and really looking forward to um, kind of ingesting that. And as I as I continue to work on the script, I've got a couple other books as well that I want to dig into after that. I mean, that's kind of the reason I read Ball Four as well. I didn't want to just have a look at baseball, um, the life of a baseball player from any perspective. I wanted it from this very distinct 1970 perspective because that's again just kind of keeping that whole um, theme consistent. And nothing too much else at the moment that I can talk about. Uh, hopefully next week uh, we'll have some interesting updates. I did pick up um, just a little thing, but I picked up a uh, promotional still 
uh, for UFO Target Earth, I didn't have. I have a set of like seven of them. It's hard to come by stuff for UFO Target Earth because it just wasn't, you know, it's not like even, even like Creature from Black Lake, which is a film I'm a huge fan of, which I've talked about in the past on this podcast because, you know, I helped track down the rights uh, for Synapse to put that on Blu-ray. Even a film like that, which isn't necessarily a household name among even 70s horror fans, there's still, you know, you can find quite a few copies of the posters and stuff like that out there. I found a number of uh, lobby cards and even foreign posters for that movie over the years that I've collected. But UFO Target Earth, I mean, that's a, even a much smaller film and really hard to come by anything. You know, I've obviously found a couple of issues of Box Office Magazine that talked about it, and I did pick up a, a set of promotional photos, seven photos. Um, that was like a year or so ago. But I just happened to, you know, I checked regularly on different sites for stuff for sale and came across someone who had a, uh, a promotional photo that I didn't, have yet. Uh, I was out in the Netherlands. I had to order it from there, so it cost a little bit uh, more than I probably would have preferred. But uh, like I said, it's hard to find anything for the film, so it's, it's worth it just to have. And um, yeah, all that stuff, of course, is going to get scanned and added, to, added into an image gallery uh, on the Blu-ray when we get to that. So moving on to other things going on in the film world. Interesting uh, to see that uh, Clint Eastwood is uh, gearing up to shoot his next movie, this will be his 40th directorial effort. And, you know, he spent most of the last, you know, let's see, about 40, 45, 46 years-ish at Warner Brothers mostly. Like, he shot some movies for some, for some other uh, studios as well, but that's where he's really spent the bulk of his time. Um, you know, the first several films he directed as he started uh, trying his hand out behind the camera were at Universal. But yeah, he's been, uh, he then transitioned over to Warner Brothers. And the current head of uh, Warner Brothers, the current CEO, David Zaslav, wasn't really a big fan of the leeway given to Eastwood. He, um, you know, Eastwood's last film, Cry Macho, didn't really do that well at the box office. But, you know, you still, you look at uh, Eastwood's directorial efforts over the last several years, he's ha obviously had very, um, uh, very lucrative films, uh, you know, like American Sniper and Sully. But even the people who were at Warner Brothers uh, prior to Zaslav knew that Cry Macho probably wasn't going to be a, a very successful project. Just they could, you know, looking at, at what it was about and the audience that it would attract. But they they went along uh, with it because, you know, Eastwood has this huge history, not just in film, but with Warner Brothers itself. And, you know, Zaslav... Uh, you know, made a. It said he made a comment when he when he was. This was explained to him. You know, it's called show business, like not show friendship or something like that. Um, you know, and so there was some concern that Eastwood's tenure at Warner Brothers might be coming to an end with this with this leadership here. But I guess it looks like things ha have resolved because uh, it's announced that he's he's prepping to shoot another movie uh, later this year called Juror Number Two, uh, the premise of which is. Um, a member of a, a jury realizes that he is responsible for the criminal act which someone is on trial for. And he has to, you know, he's caught between uh, making sure this person isn't found guilty of a crime they didn't commit and his ability to maybe sway the jury to convict this person so he's not uh, blamed for it. Um, the names mentioned for the film are uh, Nicholas Holt is being looked at to play the juror and uh, Tony Collette um, for the district attorney uh you know I'm, I'm a little bit more i'd say i'm more of a fan of eastwood as an actor than i am as a director even though you know i do like some of the films he directed um but still you know it's, it sounds like an interesting 
premise. I don't know how it will come out. You know, Eastwood, you know, there's rumors going around, of course, you know, uh, this is going to be his last film. He hasn't said that. You know, I think obviously that comes more from just him, you know, about to turn 93 that you probably at this point, they'll say any movie is his last movie. But I know he's expressed an interest in directing to uh, the age of 100. So who knows? Even, even if things didn't work out between him and Warner Brothers, I think that, you know, he could he could definitely find a spot at another studio. You know, the big thing with being at that age is insurance. I think more than anything is you know, the um, you know coming to a a project wanting to direct a film, um, and you know there's obviously going to be concerns of ensuring that director to live through the project. But at least with a director, it's probably I would imagine easier to uh, make that happen than say an actor like in. You know, if Clint Eastwood wanted to star in a movie at this age, that would probably be a lot more difficult because, you know, you, a director could always have someone step in, but it's a lot harder if you've already sh- shot half a film with your leading person. But yeah, cool. Cool just to see him continuing on. You know, a huge respect for his work ethic. I mean, he's someone who's just constantly, constantly working. I mean, just, you know, this guy started at Universal back in the 50s. You know, obviously all big fans of uh, monster movies know that his first film was Revenge of the Creature, the sequel to Creature from the Black Lagoon. But, you know, went off there to be on Rawhide and then the great success he had over in Europe with the Sergio Leone movies um, and then, you know, Dirty Harry and his, the films he did with Don Siegel here. So, you know, it's just a great career he's had. Uh, Where Eagles Dare uh, is one of my favorite films of all time uh, that he starred in uh, back with Richard Burton back in 69. Uh, so, yeah, it's just great to see that he's continued to work. I just think it's really cool when you see these kind of, um, you know, uh, directors who have this huge history behind them continue to work into their older years. Like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola is shooting a new movie now. Obviously, Scorsese keeps going. Or even people who've left us, like, you know, Sidney, Sidney Lumet, who was working up right until the end. Um, so, you know, props to them for sure. And that pretty much wraps up everything I kind of noticed going on uh, news-wise that kind of caught my interest so gonna move right on into talking about a film i watched uh first time watch last night i was in the mood for a little bit of uh, made for tv terror so i went with a 1974 movie uh i had never seen before um it was an abc movie of the week a tuesday movie of the week to be precise uh and it's called the stranger within um so it stars uh, Barbara Eden, and I Dream of Jeannie fame, of course, uh, and George Grizzard as uh, a married couple. They've been married for uh, over a decade, and she's an artist, and he's a college teacher. And uh, starts right out with you know him coming home, and uh, she informs him that she's pregnant. But this, of course, doesn't make sense because he had a vasectomy three years ago. Um, so they just kind of take it as some kind of... Um, you know, mix something happened. You know, obviously, the, the his surgery was not entirely successful. Um, but then, as they uh, you know go about their doctor's appointments, they realize there's no way that he could be the father of this child, which of course leads him to start having doubts about his wife's faithfulness, which of course upsets her because she's uh, convinced that he's the father. But then uh, Barbara Eden Jeannie starts uh, exhibiting some very unusual behavior. She starts pouring salt on everything. She's speed reading through academic books. She uh, wants the temperature always, always low. Uh, she, the house, which she was always uh, very tidy about, is becoming a mess. Um, so she's exhibiting all kinds of strange behavior. And then the baby seems to inside her seems to be growing at a, a very fast rate. Um, and on top of this is the fact that she had a health scare during uh, 
when when trying to become pregnant prior to the vasectomy. So there's concerns about how this pregnancy is even going to be affecting her overall physical health. But when they make efforts to try to have a, an abortion for her to multiple attempts to surgically remove the fetus because they're concerned about it, it you know, this pregnancy killing her, um, things arise. She starts uh, experiencing horrible, uh, painful side effects that uh, prevent the surgeries from happening. You know, I think if I describe this uh, best as a cross between Rosemary's Baby and Village of the Damned, it, I think you get an idea of where where the storyline's heading. And that's not like a spoiler. I mean, you just, you know, you, you read the, lo- the log line on IMDb or the back of the DVD box. You get an idea, a general sense of where where things might be heading with the narrative and where this um, stranger within this, this unknown uh, child came from. You know, I finished it, and my girlfriend asked me, uh, she was watching a, a different movie uh, in the other room. <laughs> she asked me what I thought of it, and I was like, well, you know, I think it's, um, I don't know if I would say that was a good movie, but I enjoyed watching it. You know, it, this was written by Richard Matheson, who, of course, is a really, you know, legendary genre writer uh, in terms of the literature he wrote, the short stories and novels, and also the screenplays. Uh, you know, he wrote several of uh, Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, uh, including Pit and the Pendulum, which I talked about last week. He wrote both the novel and the screenplay for uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man and the original short story and screenplay for Steven Spielberg's Duel. He collaborated several times with Dan Curtis, uh, including writing both Kolchak movies uh, and Trilogy of Terror. You know, And he wrote the novel I Am Legend, which you know was the basis for uh, several uh, well, well-linked uh, film adaptations over the years. And this he adapted from a novelette he wrote called Trespass. Interestingly, you know, like I said, you you watch it and you can think, okay, this is, you know, this film came out in 1974. Rosemary's Baby was, the movie was 68. um, And, you know, there was a TV sequel that came out roughly around this time. Um, You know, Village of the Damned and Children of the Damned were in the 60s. So, you know, they're just kind of um, copying and pasting. But the truth is that uh, the original novelette that this was based on, Trespass, actually came out in 53, so it predates both the source novel for Village of the Damned, which is uh, John Wyndham's The Midwich Cuckoos, which wasn't published till 57, and Rosemary's Baby, which the novel that that movie is based on came out in 67. So, I mean, it's possible that the genesis of this uh, film adaptation was the success of uh, those kind of films, and uh, but the actual idea, uh, assuming it adheres faithfully to the Richard Matheson's original story, um, you know, predated those those um, those projects. Interestingly, I saw a picture of uh, a early draft of the script. It was uh, for sale online. It had already sold, but they still had the image up of it, and it actually used the title "Trespass." That's the title they originally were going for before they they changed it to "The Stranger Within." And one interesting thing about that, actually, is that Matheson, one of his many TV writing credits, was also the original Star Trek episode, The Enemy Within, which is the one in which uh, a, a transporter accident creates a doppelganger of Kirk, an evil doppelganger of Kirk, who uh, comes aboard the Enterprise. But, you know, Matheson, I'm a big fan of you know, his work. I like those, those movies I just mentioned, like Duel and uh, the very first adaptation of I Am Legend, uh, which was the Vincent Price movie, The Last Man on Earth, as well as, you know, Pit and the Pendulum, as I said. You know, those are great films. Um, Duel is incredibly suspenseful. Uh, you know, Last Man on Earth, very atmospheric. Uh, and also, you know, uh, Matheson also wrote the 
Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, the classic uh, Twilight Zone episode with William Shatter, you know, which is very deservedly considered one of the best episodes of that show. Also, well, a really solid uh, suspense kind of horror-adjacent TV movie uh, around this time called uh, Dying Room Only with Cloris Leachman, which I definitely recommend checking out. But this is definitely not his finest hour. Uh, you know, a big issue with the this film, which clocks in at about 74 minutes, is just that it's it really stretched it. I mean, there's a lot of just shots of people sitting and thinking or Barbara Eden walking through nature or, uh, you know, you could get drunk off a drinking game of how many times they show uh, George Grizzard backing his car down this driveway. I mean, it's... It's incredibly incredible the detail they they give to the fact that uh, George Guzard lives on a uh, lives in a house with a garage, on a road which is on an incline, but insists instead of uh, every time he has to drive down the hill, instead of just turning his car around or parking in the garage, he backs it all the way down the hill. And they show this several times. Um, so there's a lot of little things like that that it's very, it, it's never to the point of like boredom. But it's very obviously, you know, comes across as padding and and stretching the material out um, to fit this runtime of what would have been like a 90 minute movie with commercials. Not great to do that right with with just that kind of material, just with straight padding, straight shots like that. You really want to develop the actual story more. Or if you're not going to do that, you want to find more uh, interesting, captivating ways of of filling the gaps between story beats and between uh, character conversations than just having to resort to kind of like, all right, we'll just have a few more shots of Barbara Eden sitting on this rock out in, in this canyon, you know? Um, and the, the behavior of Barbara Eden throughout the film you know, the strange behavior of hers, it kind of has a, a bit of repetitiveness to it. Um, you know, it almost kind of gets to the point where, you know, okay, okay, we, we get it. She, she's putting lots of salt on stuff. We get it. You know, so it, it very much comes across uh, as a short story that, for whatever reason, just could not be successfully adapted into feature length. And I don't know if that was, um, was that, you know, budget constraints, time constraints that Matheson couldn't really uh, develop it further? Um, was it just that's what he turned in? You know, or was that just a kind of uh, understanding between him and the director, you know, that we're just going to kind of, you know, uh, fill in uh, a lot of the gaps here with kind of like mood, you know, mood building of just, you know, people thinking and people uh, walking around um, and backing down driveways. Don't forget about that. It definitely stands out, you know, those kind of issues that the film has with its, with its uh, narrative structure. But it's, interesting to know is at the same time it's not like a project that's phoned in right so like this was directed by lee phillips who started out as an actor and you know had a really big boost to his career right on because he was cast opposite lana turner the male lead role in the original pay in place film which you know i'm a fan of and that was a huge film when it came out you know multiple oscar nominations including best picture spawned a sequel and then a hit tv show and um you know phillips played the role of michael rossi who you know comes into the town of Peyton Place to run the school. And, you know, he followed that up with some other films. Uh, he did Middle of the Night from, uh, based off of Pat Chayefsky work. He was, and that starred Kim Novak. And he was in uh, The Hunters, which is a war film with Robert Mitchum. He guest starred on TV shows like uh, The Twilight Zone um, and Perry Mason. And moving into the early 60s, he was doing just a lot more TV work. Um, you know, still good shows like uh, Combat. Um, he was on uh, Dr. Kildare, uh, Route 66. Uh, still did a couple films in the, in the, during this time period. Pro one that a lot of uh, horror film 
fans wouldn't be familiar with is uh, Violent Midnight, which was um, produced by Del Tenney, the, uh, the famous uh, low-budget filmmaker who directed The Horror of Party Beach and Curse of the Living Corpse. And uh, it was around this time that he started, Philip started transitioning to directing, actually, uh, going behind the camera. And he did that in 1963 was when he, when he began that. And it was, again, just episodic television. That's, that's pretty much what he did. But big shows, you know, Donna Reed show, Dick Van Dyke show, Andy Griffith show. Um, you know, Daniel Boone, he actually did direct several episodes of the Peyton Place TV show. Um, and this did, you know, did a number of television movies as well. Uh, he did The Spell, which is the uh, Carrie uh, ripoff with uh, Lee Grant. He did Red Badge of, The Red Badge of Courage with uh, Richard Thomas. Uh, the Girl Most Likely To, which is uh, this kind of like black comedy, high school comedy. Uh, with Stocker Channing, and uh, Wanted, The Sundance Woman, which was uh, a 1976 TV movie in which uh, Catherine Ross uh, once again played the role of Etta Place, which she had performed in Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And interestingly, you know, he would, you know, even though he remained active right up, right up to right before he died, he, he passed away kind of young. He died in uh, 1999. He was only 72 years old. Um, during his entire career, he only directed one theatrically released movie, which was the Gary Coleman vehicle on the right track, which uh, actually did well, did well at the box office. Uh, it, reviews were kind of middling, you know, and, and you know, obviously Gary Coleman did not become a film star, uh, but uh, that was his one theatrically released movie that he directed. And he did get a couple Emmy nominations uh, in his career uh, for one for uh, directing uh, an episode of The Waltons and another for uh, a TV movie called Mae West, a biopic of the uh, famous 30s actress. He definitely did it, he, but like I said, he definitely didn't phone in his approach to this movie. A lot of the action takes place in two, one of two locations, primarily the house occupied by Barbara Eden and George Gazard, and then uh, there are a number of scenes that take place at a hospital. And the house they filmed at is, uh, it's a real house, it's not a set which is great because it's this incredible looking 70s household with a fire fireplace right in the middle, you know, of the living room, um, beautiful mustard colored um, like curtains and drapes and stuff. Uh, I would love to live in that house, but it, it's something that could be very easily stagey. Um, it's something that could, you know, a director could really just go the easy route and, you know, just do the masters on these conversation scenes and uh, then, you know, a couple over the shoulders. But Phillips definitely takes, takes a lot of interesting approaches. You know, sometimes he's using, employing handhelds. Sometimes he's employing uh, stable shots. Definitely with, in terms of his compositions, uh, he, he's definitely trying and succeeding, actually, at keeping... Uh, keeping an energy and a, and, a, and a sense of being alive to the proceedings, you know, I, again, this kind of pointing to a bigger problem really being with, with the script. And I, again, I don't want to throw that on Richard Matheson. I don't know, you know, what happened with this production that, that led to such a, a padded, a, a padded um, screenplay, but, you know, Phillips is definitely working with, working on it to bring it the best he can to bring it what he can. Um, you know, and props to the cinematographer too for his his working with Phillips on this to to keep things interesting visually. You know, it was shot by Michael Margulies, who um, you know some of his better known credits are the first Police Academy film. He shot uh, the John Cassavetes movie Minnie and Moskowitz, uh, some cult movies early on too, theatrical ones like uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, The Baby, Brute Core. Did a number of TV movies as well. This was not his only uh, 
his only time uh, behind the behind the camera on, on a small screen project. Um, Sherlock Holmes in New York with Roger Moore. Uh, the Gene Roddenberry produced Strange New World. Um, the Questor Tapes, another Roddenberry one, and also The Blue Knight, which uh, is the cop cop TV movie, which was very well acclaimed and won William Holden an Emmy. So yeah, definitely these guys were working to keep things interesting and not taking the easy route out. The cast is good. I mean, it's interesting. It's really only five characters in the film. It's, you know, Barbara Eden and George Gazard, uh, their friends, uh, played by David Doyle and Joyce Van Patten, who are another married couple. Uh, David Doyle, of course, from um, Charlie's Angels. And uh, he's a, a colleague of George Guzard's at the college who also ha- has a background in uh, hypnosis. He's able to use hypnosis. And so that, of course, uh, allows us to uh, get inside uh, Barbara Eden's mind near the end of the film and uh, kind of start to understand what's really going on. And then the great Nehemiah Persoff, you know, the great character actor, um, you know, whether you know him as Fievel's father, the voice of Fievel's father, um, or just, you know, just, just ridiculous uh, number of films and TV shows he was in, like The Heart of They Fall and um, Day of the Outlaw, just, I mean, just so much stuff. He plays the the couple's doctor, you know, George Guzard and Barbara Eden's doctors. And there's no, other than background uh, cast, there's no other uh, people in this film. Not, I don't believe there's a single other speaking part in the movie, but they're all good. I think that, Eden's kind of a little bit of the weaker part. Um, the other ones are really tried and true character actors, and they're completely, you know, this kind of thing you get in this, this kind of a film. They're just effortless in it, you know, and, and just totally selling the material. I think Eden, she's a bit weaker in terms of her performance, but I don't, again, I don't know that that's entirely on her. Again, I think that the film is trying to communicate her, you know, her strange behavior, her un, uh, unnatural behavior, just by constantly like hitting the hammer on, okay, she's pouring tons of salt on stuff. Okay. She's going to kick the blankets off. Okay. She's going to have a total mood swing. And I don't know that it's giving her the chance to bring the kind of nuance that might be better in that kind of situation. It also doesn't really, you know, and this is a part where maybe, you know, they could have solved some of the issues with padding you don't really spend much time with this character basically no time with barbara eden's character prior to her transformation really into this you know strange strangely behaving person and perhaps uh, more of that at the beginning of the film would have made her behavior later on uh, more impactful would have given her a chance to kind of uh bring more color to the character and also again would have allowed them to kind of lose some of that that more uh, superf- superfluous stuff later later on in the film. But she, you know, she in the scenes where, I guess you could say the more normal scenes, the more dramatic scenes where she's just kind of getting into it with her husband about uh, this pregnancy, uh, that definitely shows her in the best spot. I think that's an interesting thing too about the film is just the whole approach of, obviously it's not the only film uh, of this type that's kind of covered that, but you know, the whole idea of, you know, you go into this, like, it's going to be, this is going to be a genre film, this is going to be a horror film, she's going to be, you know, pregnant with this strange child, but taking time to kind of uh, look at the a realistic side effect of that, which is, okay, your husband's going to think you cheated on him because he knows he can't be the father. So it was cool that they uh, kind of took some time with that. I thought that was uh, added an interesting dynamic to it. Now, I mean, this is like a really great example, though, of a movie that despite its flaws is totally engaging and totally um, entertaining, you know, in part because of the time it was shot in. Uh, like I said, you know, they're filming on real locations. So it's like this incredible seventies house. And then there's, there's a scene between George Guzard and David Doyle 
uh, where they're eating at a cafeteria at like this college they work at, and it's incredible. It's like all olive green wallpaper and olive green furniture. It's beautiful. And again, it's a real location. You know, it's interesting. I thought this uh, a friend of mine, uh, Brett Owen, um, he saw that I had watched this movie. He's he, Brett played uh, Jason Frankenstein's father in The Last Frankenstein. Uh, but he's also a fan of uh, this kind of era of films, and he saw that I watched it, and he sent me a link to another podcast uh, which was talking about this film. And I only got a chance to listen to the beginning of that podcast, but they said something great at the beginning, which I thought the same thing when I was watching it, and that's that if this was made today, this would be a Lifetime movie. And it's true. It is a totally, uh, totally be something that would play on Lifetime now, but if it was shot now and whether it played on lifetime or somehow got into a network, which would never happen really anymore. They don't really do the TV movies anymore. I mean, it would just be, I could just imagine it being shot in the most boring, like contemporary locations, even if it was shot in the early nineties or even the late eighties, this film would really suffer because you'd have all those flaws still that we covered, but then you'd have a completely uninteresting aesthetic, unless you're into that kind of thing. But I am not into the, uh, the decor and styles of that time period. Um, especially nowadays time period. You know, I think also that there's a there's a, a sense of craziness, a little bit of over-the-top uh, attitude that, it, that the film brings in certain moments that, again, you know, coming, coming with it being in the environment of a 1970s film, it's just more impactful, I think. Um, you know, the scenes of, you know, Barbara Eden eating strange, weird foods, um, her, her chugging of coffee. There's a couple of moments in there where they do play, lean into those kind of like, oh, this is, this is really bizarre. You know, they're not just, you know, again, a lot of times it's just kind of a little bit repetitive in nature, just kind of hammering the same point over and over. But there are some moments where they kind of really dig into it and really try to have a nice over-the-top moment that's, that, does, that does come across better. And I think, again, that stuff kind of carries a lot more weight uh, just by virtue of the time period it's in. Because, um, you know, like I said, you know, despite these issues, I definitely enjoyed it. Like I, 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 like I said, I, I'm not going to recommend this to people in the same way that I would like a movie of a, a TV movie of that time period that truly is great, like Duel, you know, being an excellent example. Um, but it accomplishes, you know, kind of this key, <laughs> this key responsibility of a movie, which is that it engrosses you, you know, uh, and the the payoff at the end, you know, obviously I'm not going to give anything away, but while not fully successful in the way that it depict, depict what happens at the end, it does have uh, a, enough of an impact to, to kind of make you chuckle to yourself, be like, all right, all right, I get what they're doing here. They're having fun with it. It's also great <laughs> to see, uh, you know, Barbara Eden, no matter what she's doing in the movie, uh, you, she's, there's scenes where she's like in bed sleeping and you can tell she's still got her makeup on, still still uh, has all her jewelry, jewelry on. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the, the movie Bullet, the Steve McQueen movie Bullet. And uh, there's a great commentary track on the DVD and Blu-ray for that movie uh, with Peter Yates, the director. And there's a scene where, in that movie where Steve McQueen, you know, his girlfriend's played by... Jacqueline Bissett, Steve McQueen plays Bullet, the police police officer, and you know the lovely, beautiful Jacqueline Bissett early on in her career plays his his girlfriend, and he sees her in bed. He opens like a door or something, I think, and, and checks on her. And on the commentary track, uh, Peter Yates notices how like perfect her hair is, um, even though she's in bed in the morning having supposedly slept overnight. And he says something like, oh, I think we were a little too Hollywood on that. And that's exactly what I thought whenever I saw Barbara Eden. Like, there's a lot of scenes where she's in bed in this movie because she's, you know, they're, again, kind of really digging down on that, her, like, kicking off the covers and um, constantly uh, wanting to be 
uh, colder and having the temperature down. So there's a lot of shots uh, of her at rest where you can see like the, the, the eye shadow under her eyes still, and she's still got like all her rings on. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a little Hollywood in moments like that for sure. Definitely a fun film still. Um, you know, Warner Archives put this out on DVD pretty cheap. You sometimes can pick them up for like 10 bucks, depending when they have their sales. The master that they used is, you know, older, still, still pretty solid uh, visual presentation. I'd love it if they uh, put stuff like this out of Blu-ray though, and just completely gave it a new high def scan. There are some scenes in this film, which are kind of shot deliberately low light, uh, low light interior scenes, which I think, you know, would be really nice to see that stuff, uh, get a whole, a whole new fresh breath blown into them. I don't know, you know, how, high up on uh, Warner's uh, priority list that a title like this is. But, you know, they have done some other TV movies, uh, horror TV movies from the 70s uh, in the not-too-distant past, like uh, Bad Ronald and um, The Bermuda Deaths. So hopefully they'll get to this one uh, uh, sooner rather than later. But, yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I definitely think it's it's fun to check out if you're, um, you know, like me, a fan of 70s TV movies in general and the horror ones more specifically. Also, shout-out to uh, Charles Fox, who did the the music for this um, you know, Fox did a, he did several films with uh, Larry Pierce back in the day. Uh, he had a couple Oscar nominations, uh, still with us actually, uh, in his early eighties. He had some good moments in this with the, with the themes he came up with. Uh, like the end theme was one of the ones that really kind of stood out to me the most. Yeah. Check it out though. Uh, the stranger within 1974 and let me know what you think about it. So, you know, shout, shout me out on the, uh, on Facebook or shoot us an email over at carpet city cinema at hila-film.com to let us know what you thought about this. Um, that's going to kind of wrap things up for tonight, kind of a shorter episode. You know, continue to spread the word about the podcast and about The Last Frankenstein. We do have some big announcements coming up on that. Hopefully, I know I keep saying, like, hopefully next week we'll see, but there is definitely some big stuff at work with that that we want to uh, put out there. But yeah, thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast and for supporting Gila Films. Like I said, if you have any questions or any thoughts on things, just feel free to shoot us an email or message us on the Facebook pages. Um, you know, give us a like. Give us a like for um, the uh, episodes we've been uploading to YouTube. I've uploaded all the episodes of the podcast to YouTube, uh, and we'll do so with this one as well. So thank you very much for the support, and uh, take care. Mm-hmm.